Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick Matthews, and it's a pleasure to be in the studio with you today to take you into the world of science. Thanks very much to Declan for Irish Voice just beforehand, some beautiful Irish music as always. But now, as always happens, on at 11am on Sundays, we have the show of Fuzzy Logic. And today I'm really excited because I have a guest in the studio with me and we're going to be talking about the science of comics or science in comics or comics and science, something along those lines. Um, joining me today is uh, Stuart McMillan. Now, Stuart's a cartoonist based in Canberra who draws long-form comics, and a lot of them are inspired by social issues that focus around science, ecology, sustainability, psychology, and even economics as well. Welcome along, Stuart. G'day, Brian. Thanks for having me in. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited because I've... Um I've been reading your comics for a little while uh, and, and seeing them on various uh, sciencey topics. And I, I think any even many years ago, you came and talked to Rod on this show. Many years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's right. 2015, but, I think it was. Oh, gosh. So there have been a few comics from you published since then, haven't there? That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're, I'm really keen to dive into those today. And... Um, how they've uh, they've uh, shaped uh, your engagement with various scientific issues, but I guess the important thing, Stuart, is uh, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been writing comics for? Long story short, is uh, I, I've been cartooning since roughly two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. I sort of wanted that as an outlet for myself when I was working a day job, Monday to Friday, and was just wondering how I could spend my time on the weekends doing something a bit creative. And originally, I, I began by doing some humorous comics, sort of like the classic gag style comics. And then that that wasn't really my thing. And I sort of, around about um, 2010, 2011, I sort of hit upon this idea of more um, I guess something a bit closer to what I'm doing at the moment, which is science communication comics. Right. So that, that, that sort of sprung from my interest in environmental issues, which was something I was just learning about from my own perspective. And I just wanted an outlet to help to communicate some of the things that I was learning and hoping to get those ideas into other people's minds. And comics just seemed to be a really efficient way to communicate these ideas with people. Yeah. So were you studying science officially or anything like that, or it was just something no. that piqued your interest? It was, I, I had been good at science when I was in high school, but I studied something completely different and was on a different career path. But I always just kept an interest as to what was being written about in New Scientist magazine and was very interested in climate, um, climate science and fossil fuel depletion and those kind of environmental issues and just was spending a lot of time reading nonfiction books and and sort of thinking, okay, I've just spent the last three or four hours reading this nonfiction book about energy and sort of wondering how I could possibly, you know, I've, I've taken the time to read this book and it's all in my mind at the moment, but the average person who I run into on the street, I can't exactly expect them to receive this book in their hands and then take the four hours to read it because they everyone's busy. So I was just thinking, how can I communicate the the critical issues um in a kind of a teasing way to 
to get people most of the way along the journey and maybe interested to learn a bit more after reading one of my pieces. Yeah, that's no, great. And I love, I love that, uh, that idea of, of really bringing people into, into your head uh, through yeah. these, these comics. So how does that process start for you? Like, how do you, how do you find that issue that you want to write a comic about? It's, it, ideally, it'll be a, a really, I mean, there's a number of factors that go into making a really good comic and um, probably the, the comic that has reached the most people that I've ever published is a comic called Rat Park, which is, um, uh, it's it's available for anyone to read at ratpark.com and it's, a, it's about a classic science experiment from the 1970s um, and 80s where that it was about some scientists doing some drug experiments on um, gro- on a group of rats using morphine as the the test drug. Yeah, and, and so and I've got a copy in front of me here, listeners, and it's <laughs> it's it's got a pretty um, I, w- I wouldn't say bleak, but a pretty uh, gothic front cover here <laughs> with um, uh, rat part written in. Uh, I think it's a Led Zeppelin inspired font, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This, it, the, the cover is a parody of the Hermit, which is an image inside Led Zeppelin 4's album. And I've managed to sneak um, references to every single Led Zeppelin album cover within the artwork to the comic. Oh, there you but go. I, I tend to just make things a little. I, I, I tend to do very. Um, the content that's within the comic is. Um, mostly of my own creation but i tend to make the front cover of all the comics sort of reference some other album cover or movie poster or something like that yeah yeah well and this one for for listeners who don't have it in front of them has uh, uh, a person standing up on a hill with a black cloak on um and a, and a lantern uh, with a staff and down below you can see uh what's kind of looking like a forest but is is rats in a maze and these two rats peering up at them mm. i mean it's it's um, you, you feel sorry for the rats on the front cover, I think, and, which is an interesting thing. But let's explore this yeah. story further. So these so, drug so, experiments. Well, th- this is a, this is a good example of what is a good story that captures my imagination. Which is, um, for a start, this is just a flat-out classic science experiment, which was um, done by some imaginative researchers who then not only did the experiment, but they documented it in a great way that enables me to pick up the research and fully understand what they did during it. And um, it's great that I I was able to find a little bit of information about the scientists involved. So I could have Professor Bruce Alexander as the protagonist of the comic. That's that's a, a great thing for me to have as an artist is a main sort of character to have as the focal point so that I'm not just totally talking about disconnected events and things happening. There's kind of a person that we follow throughout the journey. Yeah. And of course, they they did some really interesting science. So this was about the idea that many people just assume that um, if you were to walk up to someone on the street and inject them with heroin, um, or it, you know, if you were if you were to t- inject ten different people with heroin, that they'd all have different or that they'd all have similar experiences. We we sort of have this idea that certain drugs are inherently addictive and have these properties that. Um, have have similar addictive properties to the people who experience them. Yeah, but yeah. Um, the 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 Rat Park study actually showed that the way that people respond to um, drugs and the effectiveness actually has a lot to do with the social um, conditions that the people uh, experience. So, right. 
Right. So, ah, oh, that's really interesting. So, hold on. You're talking about social conditions. So, you're putting they were putting these rats in different social conditions through this experiment. Yeah. So, yeah. The, what the study was all about is they the people who ran the rat park experiment were looking at the results for um, drug addictive behaviour in rats that had been experienced up until that point, and. They, the researchers realized that all of these rats had been experimented on in isolated cages. So the rats had sort of been locked in a cage and have, they'd been given no other opportunity to do anything um, except to sit around and um, take morphine. And the, the researchers were saying, well, hang on, we've just, this doesn't really make a lot of um, sense because we, you've taken a social animal. Rats love to hang around in social groups with other um, other rats and um, you've isolated it and you've you've given it nothing else to do except take drugs. It's no real surprise that they're sitting around and taking drugs. So the rat park experiment, it took half the rats and put them in isolated cages, but it took the other half of rats and put them into a group enclosure. And um, the researchers were measuring how much morphine the individual rats were choosing to take of their own free will um, whilst in a social experiment and they found very different results with the rats in isolated cages compared to the rats that were in um, the group house the the rats in the group house actually took way less um, opioid drugs than the ones that were in the cages with nothing else to do yeah which is i mean it's it's unsurprising when you put a human perspective on on that sort of thing you know if you were with friends or or isolated at home it's definitely going to change your behaviors and that sort of thing but Mm. um yeah so that's a really interesting story a really interesting experiment to uncover why what what about that story led itself to a comic why 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 did you put that well obviously comics is your your forte but but what's um what about the comic is is lending itself in that story Look, it's I I I had I was able to get in touch with Professor Bruce Alexander and get in and um, get some photographs of what the Rat Park enclosure looks like, um, which which was something that wasn't really out there before I did the comic. Like yeah. th- this was a semi well known experiment, but no one had really. It, it wasn't really clear to people how this experiment looked when it was being conducted. Um, and, and I presume that's because probably most of the communication around it had been through scientific papers and those sorts of mediums. Yeah, yeah so um, most of the way that this was out there in the world was just through a scientific paper which had tables of data and graphs and all things which are really good to have, but it it didn't really lead much to people being able to visually understand what happened. And so I was able to, um, yeah, use these protagonist characters to, to have as the main things that people use when they understand the story. I was able to put people, I, basically I wasn't, I didn't want to have a situation where I was just purely telling people what the outcome of the study was. I wanted to have people be able to experience um, the the process of running the experiment, and I've had a lot of feedback from science teachers actually, who um, they may not particularly be running classes that are interested in drug science, but they actually tell their kids to read the Rat Park comic because it just shows how how a scientist would go about creating an experiment, running an experiment, and then interpreting the results. I sort of I take people from start to finish through that entire journey of discovery. 
Yeah, well, and I think that's the interesting thing about this piece as well. You you do get that perspective from it, and in fact, I mean, in some ways, you actually get the rat perspective as well because you put us down there in the in the rat park. But um, yeah, you can one hundred percent see the scientists looking on as as real people, um, trying to trying to understand their world and, and what's happening around it. Mm. Um, and you said um, you connected uh, with the main scientist in this study. Um, what did they think of seeing themselves in comic book form? He, Professor Bruce Alexander was really over the moon. I think <laughs> when I was, uh, I, I did approach him, I think it would have been about 2011, 2012, and just asked some questions about the experiment. And I, maybe he didn't quite know what to expect beforehand, but he just, he was nice enough to answer my questions and to clarify some of the, um, the research to me. And, and in fact, sort of, there were points where I was maybe overstating the the, the impact of his research and he, he had to rein me back a little bit to say, well, maybe that's going a little bit too far with that. I mean, that, that's scientists in a nutshell, though. They're very conservative people, aren't they? Mm, <laughs> yeah. In the comic, you want, you want to push, push the boundaries, right? That's right. Yeah. And so he um, his feedback after seeing the final comic is he was really happy. He could um, show it to his grandchildren to be able to explain what he was doing back in the 70s and 80s. And he's now, if you go to Bruce Alexander's webpage, he's got a, a, a prominent link on there to come and read the Rat Park comic. And then that redirects to ratpark.com so that people can see my comic. And um, literally um, 650,000 people have read this comic through my website and it's led to a, a sort of a resurgence of interest in his work. And um, it's now... You know, there have been documentaries made about it. There have been um, TED Talks um, staged on on this experiment. So it really has um, led to a whole different <laughs> range of research. I even there was a there was a popular Australian TV show called The Letdown, which is about sort of young parents. That was on ABC TV a few years ago, and there was an episode about Rat Park, and it's I was sort of watching that I was watching the letdown and that they start talking about Rat Park and was having this almost um outside of body experience where I'm thinking I bet that if I hadn't have drawn my Rat Park comic it wouldn't have trickled through the networks for these these writers of the show to have learnt about this concept to now be creating this show which I am now watching it was it was <laughs> there have been a few things like that where I have thought if I hadn't have published on this particular topic then all these other flow-on effects wouldn't have happened so it's a fantastic uh, chain of events there to bring that together um, and I guess apart from inspiring ABC TV shows what, what do you hope that readers get from um, engaging with one of your comics look the I hope I hope a lot of things come out of it. Um, I hoped to, like I'm doing this, I've been doing this for 10 years as my full-time career. And I, for a start, I just, I like the idea that I am a full-time artist and kind of being an example to other people that people can live a life of freedom and creativity. Um, you know, I may not be the richest guy in the world, but I'm able to chart my own path and, um, be an artist in today's society. Um, you know, that's what I hope as that's what I hope I can be an inspiration to other people for on that level. But in terms of people reading the comics, um, I hope to really inform people, um, to inspire people to think about the world in a different way when it comes to, you know, whether it is, it is Rat Park and the way that people think about drug science and drug politics, 
I've done some other comics about energy and um, things to do with the environment and climate change. I've had some direct feedback from readers who've said that, yes, I, who have told me, look, I have literally changed my career and um, I think about the world differently after reading one of your comics. So it is um, just, yeah, really trying to, to influence people on a number of different ways. No, a fantastic way to try and uh, yeah change perspectives on on people's own lives, but also the the issues around there. Look, Stuart, I'm keen to dive in a bit further to talk about some of the issues covered in your comics and um, and also how how you've talked about yourself in your comics as well. Um, but we're going to have a short music break for the moment. Uh, so here's local artist Alice Cotty, and this is her song "Goodbye Winter." <laughs> And that was Alice Cotty there with Goodbye Winter. Fantastic Canberra artist. And you're listening to Canberra's community radio station, 2XXFM. We are People Powered Radio. And uh, we're always here beaming out at 98.3 FM or streaming online at 2XXFM.org.au. It's also where you could subscribe and make your donations if it's getting towards the end of financial year and you need to offload some money. We'll happily take it from you. Um, all subscriptions online there, 2xxfm.org.au. Support your community radio and support your community artists too. That's who we've got in the studio at the moment, local cartoonist uh, Stuart McMillan, uh, who's uh, talking about his comic book works um, that he does right here in Canberra, but sharing with the world uh, online. And uh, we were discussing in the break the the fact we've got Stuart as a visual artist coming here and talking on the radio about it. Um, so we thought we might uh, try and dive into the, the style and the visions of your comics and, and talk about them as best we can. Because mm. I, was, I was outlining Rat Park to start with, with the quite dark cover based on a, a Led Zeppelin cover. I know um, one of your other covers of um, uh, the the piece um, St Matthew Island is on modelled on one of my favourite comics, which is Tintin. Uh, That's is, right. Yeah, yeah, beautiful piece there. And, and I guess if if people haven't seen my work, um, that Tintin is a pretty good reference point for the way that I draw my characters. So you know, Tintin famously has the two little dot eyes and. Most of the characters are drawn in quite a naturalistic way, but there are, are sort of some cartoony elements to, you know, the way that the rocket ships are drawn and everything like that. So, yeah, if people um, if people are sitting at home wondering how I've drawn the characters in Rat Park, it is sort of in that Tintin style with the the clear line um, style. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting because it, it's very clear lines, but there's a lot of detail going on in in your pictures too. Um, and I guess um, is there, is there a, a, a how how are you pulling together how much to put in and how much to leave out because it's not a bare comic like a a newspaper comic or something like that there is there is a good amount of detail in there um, yeah yeah so I, I guess comics I'm using them as and I say science communication but that that sounds like a very precise and overly overly structured way to to talk about what I do but it I am trying to 
to tell a story and to get information into people's minds. And the beauty of comics is that we get to use text and images simultaneously. So um, there might be parts of the story where I have a lot of text and I'm telling a lot of the story through the words that I'm using and, and the images might take a bit of a background step. But then there might be other other parts of the story where um, I I really have a a, a very prominent image and um, I might just go down to very short sentences that are just um, really um, where the, the words are taking a step back and I'm letting the, the imagery do most of the heavy lifting. So there's, there's a lot of things that you can control as a comics artist in terms of how, um, how quickly you, you have panels sort of, um, I guess the, if you have a whole lot of small panels next to each other, that sort of symbolizes um more of a rapid um, style of um, pace at which I'm suggesting people should read it. And then often when it's sort of uh, bigger panels, which are spread out, that also influences the, the reader's experience. So is sounds like there's a bit of psychology in that. Is this something that you've uh, read up on or you've just uh, refined over time with, with trying different things? I mean, it's a little bit of trial and error, but there are definitely some good books um, on the subject. There was, there's two really good books by Scott McLeod. One of them's called Understanding Comics and the other one's called Making Comics. And I mean, they're, they're great reference points for me as someone who's trying to do this, but they're also just great books for anyone out there who wants to have it explained to you how artists can use this medium to influence your reading experience. So um, I've even got a YouTube channel where I'm um, I'm doing a little book review of Scott McLeod's comics and really just um, showing some of what he's explaining in his books to to um, to explain this to to the readers. Yeah. So do you think comics as an art form them are, are slightly more prescriptive than, than some other art forms where, you know, a painting on its own might leave a lot to interpretation. Um, music can, can, you can obviously feel different things, but there's a lot of interpretation there. Do you feel like you're guiding people more as a comic book artist? Yeah, well, I guess a painting, as that example, kind of exists as something, a, a piece in its own right, that's kind of a world into itself, whereas... By definition, a comic is a juxtaposed series of images that are designed to be read one after the other. So comics and, and I guess the text within the panels of the comics are designed to be read as part of a continuous narrative. So I, I do have to think about a lot about how people's eyes will move across the page or if people are looking at them through my website, how how that will flow from left to right because I've got that sort of um, experience on my website where you sort of have this enormous horizontal ribbon of um, of content where people if they're if they're going to ratpark.com they're they're actually reading from left to, to right 40 pages in a row so I have to think about all that pacing and how people might be going as as they're absorbing this information and understanding the story that I'm trying to tell yeah, and going up and down across the page as well as you're scrolling left to right, it is it is a unique experience, I think, reading a comic in that way rather than in, in book form, which people are probably most used to. Um, but I, I think, um, yeah, the, the way you guide people's eyes through it works really well. Mm. 
The other thing I'm curious about while we're talking about style here is is your use of colour because um, your early comics are, are all black and white. Um, Rat Park, the one we've been talking about a bit, is all in black and white. And then as you've started to come through into some of your newer comics more recently, there's splashes of colour there, but you haven't gone full colour yet. Is that a is that a purposeful choice or is it just because you're slowly learning how to use color it's kind of the latter actually (laughs) yeah it's like literally when i was when i was doing st matthew island which is a comic that you referenced um earlier that was in 2010 and i'd up until that point i'd just been because i'm very self-taught put it that way i um i just i decided to be a cartoonist and then picked up the pen and learned how to do it um rather than having the skills and then finding the outlets in, in the medium. So yeah, I've basically gone from purely doing the outlines of characters. And then I had the breakthrough of maybe I can do some gray or some black shading to, to color some things in different shades of gray. And then I had my comic war on drugs where that's, that's kind of a black and white gray scale experience for the vast majority of the comic. And then it sort of goes into color for the final two or three pages to kind of, I don't know, symbolize a, a change at the end of the comic. I sort of broke into color. So that was, that was a little um, deviation from the black and white theme. And just as, as time's gone by, I've um, found ways to use kind of splashes of color to, um, to emphasize a certain point through my work. No, it's great. I love the the self learning process you've you've gone through there, and I I want to I want to get back to the science in a bit and talk about some of your more recent ones. But I think while we're talking about you, um, some of your more recent comics have focused on your your personal um, outlooks on life and personal learnings. Um, what what brought you to, to to start telling your own story in the comics? I think it was along the same lines as what I was talking about before, where I realised that it was. It was good to have Professor Bruce Alexander um, as as a protagonist for people to follow through um, my Rat Park comic. I sort of thought, well, there were some topics that I was looking to explore that were more about just my outlook on the world, and I just thought, well, maybe it's maybe I could be a protagonist. Um, I think there are, there are some of the comics that I did. It's sort of something that I've gone off a little bit recently. Like I I sort of had a period between about maybe 2017 and 2019 where I was sort of putting myself forward as the protagonist in the comics. I've kind of gone back to the formula of having someone else be the one who's out there that I'm emphasizing as the main character. But yeah, definitely probably the most um, successful of the comics that I did during the period with me as the protagonist was one called I Used to Be Racist, which was about my experiences of growing up in regional Queensland and having everyone around me telling racist jokes and being, you know, engaging in that myself because that was what I was experienced um, in. And then sort of getting to an age where I was reconsidering why I'm doing that and kind of getting away from that mindset. And I thought that that was an example where I wanted to put myself in that position because I thought it would be more relatable to people if I was the one putting up my hand saying that, yes, I I admit that I had that problem and that I've reflected upon that and moved on. So that that was one where I thought that um, if I was focusing on someone else as the former racist who's 
change their ways, it probably wouldn't be quite as effective if I was owning up and saying that, yes, I too um, had these viewpoints. And the positive thing is that I've um, reflected on them and moved on. Yeah. And what sort of response did you get to that comic? Well, I got on the, I think I was on the front page of the local newspaper in Bundaberg. <laughs> so um, there was a headline saying, you know, it was it was about me and it was quite a favourable piece sort of talking about a former Bundaberg resident who's who's worked the hometown into um, into a non-fiction comic. Um, and I was interviewed on the local ABC station and got a bit of press coverage that way. So I was sort of using it as a bit of a conversation starter. And I had many people who came out of the woodworks and said, yes, that was what I did when I was at high school as well. And I, I you know, people who are really walking back those kind of comments that they reflect on as um, mature adults. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose, was it cathartic for you to get that, that story down on paper out of your head? Yeah, definitely. That was, um, I, I, there had been some things that had just been bugging me for a while that I thought, oh, if, if that person's still out there in the world, um, it, it would be nice for them to somehow learn that, you know, people have, have matured. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, let's take a step uh, away from your, your personal period <laughs> into, into your latest comic, um, which is The Town Without Television. Um, uh, the, the title is a bit self-explanatory, but there's a whole story in there. How did you stumble across this, uh, this experiment? It, it uh, it's part of my normal way of being, which is just going to the library and renting out all sorts of books on different topics. There was a book called Bowling Alone by an author called Robert Putnam, who was, I think the subtitle was something like The Decline of American Public Life in the 20th Century. <laughs> and the title Bowling Alone is about the fact that in the 1950s and 60s, it was really common for people as... Um, as an evening activity to join the local bowling league, sort of like Homer Simpson in The Simpsons, and you know join the bowling league and do that as a as a hobby with other people in your team. Um, and he's talking about how that was kind of a peak experience and and other things like that in society. And then by the 1990s, it was down to a situation where if people were going to do those kind of activities in public, it was sort of a solo activity or maybe an infrequent thing that people were doing. Um, with their friends every now and then and he the entire book was about the sort of the way that there was a peak of social activity in the middle of the 20th century that sort of had declined by the year 2000 which was when he published the book and in the in the book there was a reference to this experiment called the no-tell experiment that was run in Canada during the 1970s and I I was reading this book hot on the heels of drawing Rat Park and other comics. And there was a three-page section on this town without television experiment that I thought, this is just perfect for me to cover as a comic. So just the upshot of the experiment is that some researchers from a university in Vancouver had been interested in TV and the influence that television was having on people who watch TV but they didn't quite know how to quantify quite how much um, influence TV was having on people because it was just so hard to find a control group of people who didn't have access to TV. The entirety of North America got TV reception all at once in the 1950s, and they were in the 1970s, you know, 25 years after the horse had already bolted. 
and they happened to find this town that was in the Rocky Mountains in the middle of a valley that through a fluke of geography just did not have TV reception because of the way that the mountains were positioned. And the way that they heard about this is because they were about to build a broadcast tower next to the town and it was going to be the final black spot in North America that was filled by TV reception. So as you can imagine, they there was a rush on. They really wanted to do a before and after study into the way that this town acted before TV came to town and the way that they acted after it came to town. So I focus on a particular professor called Tannis Macbeth, who was the orchestrator of this experiment, who um, really organized um, the experiment. Um, this, she, she got a team together to focus on different aspects that television could possibly be influencing the residents on. And yeah, she, she ran one study in 1973 and another study in 1975 so they could draw, um, draw the comparison between those two points in time. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story. And I've read you've got parts one and two out, but it, the story's not quite complete yet. But with um, Tannis Macbeth there as the, the main protagonist, uh, you've done a great job of telling the story from her perspective. How did you pull out all that information from, from the experiments? Um, I'm presuming it's more than just the three pages in the uh, Putnam novel. Yeah, I mean, he, he does a very good way of explaining the upshot of the experiment in his book. Um, and just to, to cut a long story short, for anyone who's listening to this and is wondering what they found, they found that the town before television came to town, all the children were, were reading at a, an above average rate. They were playing sports at an above average rate to the extent that the senior citizens of the town were playing sport at a much higher level than the children of the, the neighboring town. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were, you know, adults were able to... Um, that they were running experiments on the adults as creative thinking and um, they were doing that at an above average rate. Um, the residents were attending dances and suppers and community events at an above average rate. And then in phase two, after the TV had come to town, basically the, the town had just reverted to the average of um, typical Canadians. So um, it's sort of like, it's like an influence that, the town was shielded from it's sort of like the floodgates had opened and they just re reverted to the typical North American average. Yeah. So. so that's interesting. So that's all based around activity there. Was there any, uh, and this might be too hard to measure, but was there any study that was done on like genuine happiness and that sort of thing in people's emotional states? I don't think that was part of what they studied. Yeah. No, yeah. but yeah, to answer your question, yeah. I, I read the three pages in the bowling alone book and thought this is great. Um, and then I tracked down the original research, um, which they happened to have a copy of in the national library of Australia. So I was <laughs> at that stage, I just, um, borrowed it. Well, I don't know if you know about the national library, but you can't actually take the books out of the collection you mm. I, I needed to go into the reading room there and just spend two or three days kind of reading the book and making notes along the way later on i actually bought my own copy from from a secondhand seller because this this book's just way out of print it was published in 1986 and yeah she she and her team did a fantastic job of really do creating a book that has all of the detailed information of the studies including all of the statistical tables on the the before and after numbers for the various things that they measured but i think she had a really 
she was very interested in creating something that the average person or someone who's not a scientist, such as myself, could just open it up and it was written in plain English so that an average person could understand what it what was found and what this all means to the average person. So, so Professor Macbeth had done half the work for you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so the I really want to honour her work because I feel like I am kind of an academic descendant of Professor Macbeth. Um, almost 50 years later, um, I think next next year will be the 50-year anniversary of when they went into town to do the, the Phase 1 studies in 1973. So just really revering her foresight to do this work and um even i do actually know the identities of the towns that were involved but i do feel like i'm actually an academic descendant of hers so i'm sort of i'm honoring her decision not to name the towns because i feel like um if the if the residents who volunteered themselves to be a part of this study if they if they undertook this um, under the conditions of anonymity and the fact that their town would not be named. I feel like it's only respectful for me as someone who's following in their footsteps. And these people would still be alive in, in many cases to just keep the anonymity um, present. Yeah. I, I, I've sort of, I've, I've got a strong feeling as to what the towns are and I've been using them as reference images for my artwork, but I'm, I'm not going to name them. Yeah, no, that's really interesting that it's still... Um... Uh, kept secret like that under to, to protect those who took part hmm. um, but yeah it's amazing to think that, that some of those people in that are, are still alive have you been able to connect with the professor herself who, who ran the study unfortunately um, yeah professor Macbeth died last year and I just wasn't able to get in contact with her um, during her life to, <laughs> to you know to let her know as to what I was up to hmm. But amazingly, um, some of her colleagues and some of her family members have been in touch with me um, and have been not only answering questions about the experiment, but also just um, very appreciative that I could, you know, that they're quite amazed that um, this work that she was doing 50 years ago is still of interest to this random guy in Australia who's um, got this random hobby of being a comics artist and they're really chuffed that she is now um, her memory is being kept alive through this process and in fact they were aware of my work um, before she ended up um, dying last year and they made the offer to me that um, when when the obituary was put into the newspaper they actually had a reference to my work down the bottom and there was a suggested donation that instead of gifting flowers they could um, make a donation to my fundraising project to help me to keep her name going into the future so that's amazing that's fantastic and i'm presuming that's been a lot of support to you to keep this project going yeah there's been over seven thousand dollars of direct donations um given to that crowdfunding campaign which is still uh, still happening at the moment so um i have had the the little drip feed every now and then of new people who who are late to the party of the town without television just getting on board and making a donation so yeah. yeah that's right and if um people want to check out that comic where can they find it yeah just go to townwithouttelevision.com and that'll i've got the two parts published at the moment and i've also got a crowdfunding page and as i as i publish part three that'll be added to there as well and and people can of course join my newsletter if they want to know when i publish part three yeah fantastic well um yeah check it out the townwithouttelevision.com 
We're going to explore some more of your comics in just a moment, Stuart, and I'm curious as to, to future implications of that no-tell study as well. Um, but we should probably have a short music break. Betty Auto there with Here We Go Again. Great Canberra band if you ever get a chance to see them. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM here, 98.3 on the dial, or maybe you're streaming online at 2XXFM.org.au. If you do enjoy listening to our community radio, we are People Power Radio. And we rely on your subscriptions as well, and you can do that on our website. So check it out and uh, donate if you're able uh, to support shows like Fuzzy Logic, and and one of the which is one of many shows that we have on here supporting our local community. Uh, my name is Broderick Matthews, and joining me in the studio today is uh, Canberra cartoonist, uh, comic book artist Stuart McMillan. It's been great talking to you today, Stuart. Likewise, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, we've been exploring Stuart's work uh, in comics, and uh, of course, being on Fuzzy Logic, you know, there's going to be a science bent to it, and and there is with Stuart's work. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the town without television which was uh, looking at a town in 1973 that was the last Canadian town without TV reception and uh, some of the before and after experiments ran run by Professor Tannis Macbeth and her team there. And uh, you said it was, it was a really interesting outcome there around uh, the recreational drop and that sort of thing. Um, now, currently, I guess we're experiencing a bit of a change in the way we view TV at the moment in our world with streaming services. Uh, are psychologists seeing a change in the way people are interacting with TV now? I don't know much about things from the psychological perspective, yeah. but... I guess one of the points I'll be making later on in this project, because this is an ongoing project that I'm publishing to my website, and it's also something that I'm um, working towards as a book project as well. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess the point that I'd like to make, yeah, we, we don't have the same experience of watching broadcast TV as we did in the 1970s in the exact same way. Um, one of the points that I make during my comic is that this period during the 1970s was basically the perfect time to run this study because it was before video game consoles came in, it was before VCRs came in, it was before satellite TV services came in. So the people um, who were in this study, the only way that they could experience television was by watching what was broadcast live at that moment. There was no way for them to plug in a video and just watch something that had been pre-recorded. So... We yeah we're not totally in that world anymore where you need to tune in at eight thirty to watch a particular TV show, but I guess the point that I'd make is that we still have a very similar relationship with television on a on a an experiential basis as we're watching it. Like we still have the experience of um, whenever there's a screen happening and we sit down to watch television. It's a very similar experience that happens to our bodies as we watch it. Um, there have been scientific studies that show how people's brain activity drops as they're watching TV. They um, their breathing slows. Um, their um, their metabolism slows. It's almost like you're entering kind of a, a sleep or a coma type state in terms of how your body drops off when it comes to that. And um, yeah, I think that there are there are you know there, there can be times where that's positive but i think um there it's definitely something to 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 be wary of in terms of how much how many hours we spend um experiencing this depressed state of um lower brain activity 
Yeah, indeed. And I guess um, that's probably a big difference with comic books too. It doesn't uh, take you into that. It's not a um, uh, a uh, passive medium. Uh, you're actively engaged when you're reading comics like yours. Exactly. So if, if you're watching TV and you happen to sort of zone out for a bit and look out the window or, you know, something catches your attention in the room and then you, you notice that the TV's moved on, it's because the TV is telling its story 24 frames per second without your involvement whatsoever. Whereas if you're reading a book or if you're reading a comic, your eyes are the ones that are going over the page, you're, you're seeing the juxtaposition of the text and the image, and it's all coming together in your own mind. You're the one who's telling the story to yourself. If you happen to get halfway through a page and you think, hang on, I, I don't quite understand what's happening here, you can actually... Move your eyes back to the top right, uh, top left corner of the page, and begin the experience again. And so, it it is something that you're you're actively, in the case of a just a prose textbook, you're the one who's imagining all of the characters and what the world is looking like. Or if you're reading a comic book, you see images of what the characters are like, but you're the one who actually does the important work of animating or imagining what happens in the panel gaps, the gutters between the panels. So it's 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 a very engaging way of reading, and um, I've I've actually introduced a few people in my life to graphic novels and to reading comics recently. These are people who had previously only read um, traditional prose books; they'd not really read comics before. And just one of the feedbacks I get from these new readers of graphic novels is just kind of amazed at how quickly you can get through a 300-page book just um, because it is, it's so engaging to actually rip through um, a story in this fashion. So yeah. yeah, sometimes I must say I find that myself uh, when I'm reading a, a comic that I'm, I, I feel like I'm going too fast through it, but it's just because it is so easy and, and, and absorbing. Um, well, I was going to say, speaking of introducing people, apart from your own comics, is, is there a good spot someone should start, especially if they want to engage with sort of scientific-based comics? Oh, look, there's a really great comic that I only finished reading yesterday. Um, it's by Sam Woolman, and it's, it's a comic called Our Numbers Be Unlimited. And it's um, it's actually about the history of the union movement in Australia and also talking about Sam's own experiences because um, he's someone with quite a, a unionistic background, like sort of seeing the, the value of workers' rights and his experience working at the Amazon Distribution Centre in Melbourne um, when that opened up a few years ago, um, being one of the people going, I think they call them the pickers, the people who pick the items off the shelf and put them into a shopping trolley and then that gets wheeled over to the people who pack them and send them through the post and it's just about the very dehumanizing experience of actually doing doing that work and that they're very... um, pedantic about the the timing like they, mm. they they want people running around at, at a high rate at all times and yeah it doesn't sound like good work conditions there but it is um in some ways the future that we're that we're, we seem to be heading to at the moment so it's interesting to uncover those stories yeah um yeah and i was speaking of the future we've talked about your your no-till the town without television and, and part three and Maybe even part four is to come, but uh, what, what's what's the next big issue for you? Do you think uh, after you finishing that one? Look, it 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 definitely is the town without television that's my main focus at the moment. Um, I'm I am working towards this as a book project because it is. I've done a number of pieces in the past that have kind of been a, 
a lot of the way towards being a book-length project, but this does actually feel like something that is enough to fill a book and to be a work in itself. So, um, yes, I'm in the process of adapting what's already been published on my website to something that will actually fit onto a into a book with sort of, you know, the left-to-right book page-turning experience. Um, yes, I've, I've already published some information about the experience that um, television had on the individuals in the town. The next part that I'll be drawing about is the way that this influenced the community and the way that the people work together in the town without television. And then, yeah, towards the end of the book, I'll actually be um, talking about how this 1970s research is relevant to us today. And I think that there is a lot that we can still take from this um, 50-year-old research um, in the 2020s. It sounds like an amazing story. So if people want to check out that story or maybe support your work further and engage with many of your other pieces, a lot of which have, you know, scientific environmental issues involved, where can they go, Stu? Yeah, probably the best way to do it because I've I've got this name that people can spell all sorts of different ways. So the best way to get onto my website is just type in townwithouttelevision.com that'll sort of hotlink people to that part of my website. But once you're in there, you can go and check out my top 10 comics and which is sort of my recommended reading list for people who are new to my work. And look, just if you start reading the Town Without Television comic, you'll get to the end of that and there'll be a little photo of me smiling <laughs> and saying, look, click here and you can make a donation to help me continue my work. Um, my, I have an art studio two blocks from this two double X studio at the Gorman Art Centre and I'm in there Monday to Friday um, doing this as my full time job. So I sort of need people to give part of their income to me so that I can do this work on their behalf. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for sharing it with us here on Fuzzy Logic today, Stuart. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Thanks, listeners. And you can find us again on Sunday. This is Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.